Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio with Middle East Forum Century Radio. In just a few hours, we at the Middle East Forum will be having a very exciting event at the Washington, D.C. Capitol Hill Building, the Capitol Hill Visitor Center, with a platform on deplatforming, essentially saying that we are going to be speaking about the right to free speech, American freedoms, American liberty, and having this universal expectation for justice and the deliverance of liberty in Washington. The featured speakers include Ezra Levant, who has been subject to over 14 different lawsuits trying to mitigate his right to speak freely about issues as they pertain to Canadian national security. Daniel Pipes, the president of the Middle East Forum, and a whole milieu of other speakers who have been engaged in the fight for freedom, both here and overseas. But the keynote speaker will be Tommy Robinson, an individual who was tried, convicted, and thrown in jail all within five hours of his arrest in late May 2018 after covering as a citizen journalist the case of a rape gang, where in the UK the laws can be different. If you are reporting on a trial that has to do with anything that may tamper a, a, a jury's uh, uh, bias, as, as they call it, you'll find yourselves in a situation where you may have reporting restrictions on a trial, where a reporter can't say what's going on in the judiciary until the completion of the trial. That's different than the way we do things here in the United States. If a judge thinks that a jury's opinion is going to be tainted, he'll sequester the jury. But unfortunately, Mr. Robinson was found guilty of a contempt of court violation and then all in the span of a few hours was put in jail with a 13-month sentence. Only on appeal and after public protests organized by the Middle East Forum in July and August of 2018 did we find that Mr. Robinson was set free. Now he faces the potential of having an indictment leave it against him, but he is currently free on bail. Beyond that, we have to understand that Mr. Robinson's case is something that can happen to us here in the United States if the wrong kind of politicians get put in office. But anything beyond that is using the UK experience as a canary in the coal mine. After these messages, we'll get to the Israeli elections that might be brewing. Thanks. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, 
for us all. The few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio. I'm Greg Roman. This is the Middle East Forum Century Radio Show. We have an exciting turn of events, which on one day was tragic, the next day it was victorious, and now it is uncertain. I'm talking about the last 72 hours that's related to the future of Israel's fight with Hamas in Gaza, and also the potential for upcoming elections for Israel's parliament, the Knesset. Let's go over the story and then give a little bit of analysis on what exactly has been going on. It starts on Sunday night. An Israeli reconnaissance force goes into Gaza, a small seaside territory next to Israel proper, there on the west coast of the Mediterranean, or the eastern Mediterranean, but on the west coast of Israel's uh, border with the Mediterranean. And this force is doing a little bit of reconnoitering as it relates to the um, strategic ground that's between some hills that exist on the Gaza side of the Israeli-Gaza border, and also an area called Black Arrow, or Chet Shachor in Hebrew. In this specific area, three kilometers in, the commander of one of Hamas's most elite terrorist units, the Khan Yunus Brigade, spots an IDF reconnaissance force. Hamas opens fire against the Israelis. Unfortunately, an Israeli lieutenant colonel is hit and later will pass away from his wounds. And they begin to leave in a strategic tactical retreat from the area where they are in Gaza. Hamas pursues. At the end of the day, we find that there are seven Hamas terrorists who are dead, an Israeli officer who has been killed, and also an Israeli that is in pretty bad shape now in a hospital on the Israeli side of the border. After a series of airstrikes took place to ameliorate any further damage to the Israelis, Hamas lets a barrage of 467 rockets loose over the course of a 24-hour time period. That means that every single two or three minutes that goes by, the Hamas terror organization is lobbing rockets and mortars and mid-range missiles that are falling on Israeli populist centers. The Israeli Air Force responds in kind, having over 150 airstrikes knocking out Hamas's intelligence headquarters, its television station, which was branded a terror organization by the United States in 2010, Al-Aqsa TV, and several other targets which are associated with Hamas command and control functions. Hamas sues for peace by way of the Egyptian government. Now, only a day before these rocket salvos started against the Israelis, the Qatari government gave $15 million to pay the salaries of Hamas workers in the coastal strip. So you go from a Saturday where you're getting $15 million, you find yourself in the middle of the military kerfuffle on a Sunday, and you lob over 460 rockets on a Monday. This has led to political turmoil throughout Israel, where only this morning the defense minister of that country, Avigdor Lieberman, resigned in protest at the Israeli government's unwillingness to pursue further conflict against Hamas. And 
it's not because he has any sort of, uh, you know, visions of grandeur, delusions of grandeur in the way in which he thinks that Israel should be uh, executing its military policy. But Lieberman has been at the helm at the defense ministry for the past two years, ever since the former defense minister, Moshe Ya'alon, left office. But if we look at the prime minister of the country, Benjamin Netanyahu, he has presided over Israeli political and security decision-making for the past 10 years. This December 2008 is the 10-year anniversary of the first Gaza war, Operation Cast Lead. It seems as if, though, on average, every two and a half years, there is a flare-up in tensions between Israel and the Hamas in Gaza. Twice, in 2008 and in 2014, there were Israeli land incursions into the Coastal Strip's territory. Two other times, in 2012 and just yesterday, there were tit-for-tat airstrikes responding to rocket salvos. Nothing has changed in over a decade in that area of the Strip. And now the fact that it looks like the Israeli government is going to an election, the decision that will have to be made is will the Israelis vote for a coalition of parties that want to be able to try to find a solution to Gaza, or will they vote for the status quo and vote for just a temporary peace that can blow up at any certain time. To get a better understanding of the way in which we want to understand the, uh, uh, the Gaza uh, situation, I think it's important to recommend to our readers to recommend a few, reader, uh, few writers that you might be able to follow in terms of this topic. The first is a journalist for the Times of Israel named Raul Woodliffe who is the political reporter for the Times of Israel. And if you go to timesofisrael.com, you will see his analysis on this story, which I'll read to you now, a few paragraphs from. Raul writes, The key factor in whether recent coalition crises were going to bring down the coalition and force new elections was almost always whether Prime Minister wanted them to. Avigdor Lieberman, this is the defense minister, or now the former defense minister that we were speaking about, Avigdor Lieberman's Wednesday resignation as defense minister, as full of political drama as it may have been, did not change that fact. With Lieberman's party, just five of the 120 seats in the Knesset, his pulling the party out of the coalition will not bring it down, but rather leave it with a paper-thin majority of just 61. For anyone who hasn't necessarily followed the way that Israeli politics work, you have over 13 parties comprising 35 different interest groups in the Israeli unicameral democracy. That means that if you're religious, if you're Arab, if you're secular, if you find yourself on the left wing of the right, uh, excuse me, of the left wing of the political spectrum, on the right wing, you have a whole Z-axis, which is about religious and secular parties. And then you also have the unions, business federations, farmers groups. It's much, much, much more complicated for a country that is one fortieth the size of the United States, but has 20 times the amount of political parties involved in their political process than the United States does. So while the next election may be a referendum on what the Israelis are going to do vis-a-vis their 10-year, I mean, if we, if we go all the way back to the founding of the organization, their 30-year struggle against the Hamas terror organization, then a good weather vane to look at is the coalition and the opposition in the Israeli parliament. But going back to Lieberman's resignation this morning and his complete disgust 
with the way that the Prime Minister was operating regarding the recent uh, rise up in tensions between Israel and Hamas, I think that only the future will portend what is going to be in his place of whether he will go back to the government, of whether he will be reelected. But the much bigger question here for Israel is, what are they going to do with the Gaza Strip? We'll find out more in the weeks ahead, as soon as we're able to understand this drama a little bit better. More after these messages. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all. 
The few, the proud, the Marines. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the why. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the why as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the why. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to MEF Century Radio here on WDB 860 AM. Now for a summary of the latest news coming out of the Middle East. From Iran, Seagal Mendelker, Treasury Secretary an undersecretary for terrorism and financial intelligence cast doubt on a European effort to develop a special purpose vehicle to keep financial transactions with Iran flowing despite U.S. sanctions against the country. She thinks that the European Union won't be able to come up with a way to evade the American sanctions which have been put on Iran's oil and banking sector and that the International Atomic Energy Agency said Iran is continuing to abide by limits on its nuclear program. However, there's a five-page confidential report that may say otherwise, according to Bloomberg News. So what exactly is the European Union trying to do by abrogating and evading American sanctions against the world's largest proliferator of terrorism, of havoc, of malice, of other nefarious intent, especially in the Middle East? by creating a parallel mechanism where they can still profit off of Iran's tyrannical rulers, but at the same time, make American national security less well off. I don't think that the Europeans should go down a path which tries to undermine American national security interests. Now, on this program, we speak about the Middle East, we speak about American Middle East policy, and we also speak about a lot of the issues which surround it, especially in the fight against an ideology that emanates from the region, Islamism. But we have to mention another non-Middle East policy this morning to offer a full mirror to the way that Europe is going. In the last week, over the commemoration of the 100th anniversary of Remembrance Day, or the uh, celebration of the armistice that ended World War I, we saw two very unique statements from both the President of France and the Chancellor of Germany, Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel. Macron made a speech during this anniversary where he declared that nationalism is dead and that patriotism is its natural antecedent. And only a few days later, Angela Merkel said, the time to put together a European army is now. So let's take those two statements. Nationalism is dead, and you must put together a European army for the betterment of the European Union. On the first account, Macron said this in front of two of the world's most ardent nationalists. 
President Donald Trump of the United States and President Vladimir Putin of Russia. On the second aim with Merkel's statements regarding a European army, there is still a structure called NATO, or the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, whose major involvement in military conflict since the beginning of the aughts in 2001 has been in the Middle East. They have not been involved in the Ukraine conflict. They have, to a certain extent, had exercises in Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, the three most eastern NATO countries, if we don't include Turkey, in terms of facing against Russian aggression. But you have the Chancellor of Germany, a country whose last time they saw a pan-European army was not good for any of Europe. And France, arguably one of the most proud and nationalistic countries in the world, if we just think about the pride that they invest in the French language, in French culture, in French possessions overseas that they still send French troops to protect is saying that there is no longer a need to protect our borders. We have to enforce all of Europe's borders. The problem with this, and now hooking it back to the Middle East, is, is that the problems that have been engrossing Europe, whether it's uncontrolled migration, a certain amount of allowance for multiculturalism, meaning that different communities cannot just celebrate their heritage, but impose their heritage on areas in which they live and have a semi-autonomous lifestyle in the wake of ignoring the state's laws and mandates. This is the idea of the no-go zone, where you can have trials and neighborhood councils that don't answer to any elected authorities, especially in France and, and, and less so in Germany and Britain. So you have the man who's leading this country into this nebulous of the abyss, which is not something that's proudly French or is, is proudly patriotic. It's about splitting his country in two. Those who speak French and who were born in France, and those who came from overseas and want to rule the way that they uh, were accustomed to in the lands that they came from. And then you have the German chancellor who's saying, we have to have an army to protect all of our interests that goes beyond just our national borders without any mention of her Canadian, her Turkish, and her American allies in NATO. They are trying to undermine the post-World War II order that was put in place after America had to intervene in Europe in the 40s in order to fight back against a fascist in Italy, a Nazi in Germany, and a totalitarian dictator in Japan. Europe is trying to separate itself now whether it be by declaring an army, declaring a different ideology of what's called patriotism, or by creating alternative funding structures to get around the payment of, or not the payment, but in order to avoid the United States' sanctions on Iran. Europe is deciding to stand with a country that is the top state sponsor of terrorism rather than the United States, which is the top sponsor of freedom and liberty, in the around the globe today this is the significance of the statement that macron and merkel are making europe is trying to make a break on its own and it is trying to get to a point where it can make decisions for its own security for its own economy that are independent of the direction that the united states is going in we saw how europe was able to subordinate american interests in 2015 when Obama negotiated the Iran nuclear agreement 
with the three Central European powers and with Russia and China. Now that the United States has had a difference of opinion, Europe is casting its entire lot with Iran on behalf of alleged European sovereignty and autonomy and immunity from being able to take into account American national security needs. Twice, the United States had to come to Europe's assistance in World War I, now 100 years ago, and in World War II. The aftermath was the dispersion of American forces in Belgium, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in the United Kingdom, and throughout the rest of Europe. Those forces are still there, not just as a reminder to America and Europe's mutual enemies in Russia and in other countries, which are enemies of freedom and democracy, but also as a reminder that these are outposts of American power that are in these countries to encourage any despotic parties or autocrats that may seek power from using it. A European army is not good for the future of American-European relations. Just like a European separate mechanism to skirt American sanctions against Iran is not good for American-European diplomacy. My point on this is that they have to avoid doing things which are moving them further apart, and they have to be able to find diplomatic means to be able to get closer together. More after these messages. Fascism was the danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century. And in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of nonviolent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to our broadcast. We just spoke about Europe, Iran, Israeli elections, but now it's time to talk Turkey. This story regarding the murder journalist Jamal Khashoggi, former resident of Virginia, after having walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul in Turkey and not walking out, has now led to a 45-day news cycle, over six weeks of coverage from both Turkish, Arab, and international media on trying to find his killers, to bring them to justice, 
and to allegedly punish the state sponsorship of his murder. More news coming out today. Canada's Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, and this is from an uh, article that was in The Guardian, has become the first Western leader to confirm Turkish claims that an audio recording of Jamal Khashoggi's murder exists and has been passed to intelligence agencies. The Turkish president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, said he had given recordings to Saudi Arabia, to America, to the Germans, the French, the British, to all of them. But initially, there was no independent confirmation from any country that they had heard it. Speaking at a press conference in Paris, where he attended a peace forum after armistice ceremonies, Trudeau said Canadian intelligence had listened to the audio tape provided by Turkish intelligence, but that he had not done so. In contrast, the French foreign minister said recordings related to Khashoggi's murder were not to his knowledge and France's possession, directly contradicting Erdogan. Asked on France 2 television why the Turkish president had made the claim, Ladrian replied, it means he has a political game to play in these circumstances. If the Turkish president has information to give to us, he must give it to us. And that is exactly the problem that the Turkish president has been using in terms of advancing his political agenda itself. Erdogan has been able, in the span of six weeks, to turn international condemnation against his country that has imprisoned over 2,000 journalists, that has put thousands of academics out of a job, that has leveled an entire generation of military leadership, of diplomats, of politicians, and of political opponents by having over 100,000 of them rotting in Turkish jails. And he has taken quite beautifully and masterfully and artfully, even though his intents are nefarious, the murder of one journalist, and he has turned international opinion and the tide of where people think, not people, but where international leaders think should be the leader of the Middle East, from Sunni Saudi Arabia to Islamist Turkey. And this is something that has to be called out. It's not about the tragic murder of one. It's about the geopolitics of putting and casting your lot in with the wrong crowd. We say this a lot of times in the program, but Iran is the threat of today. Turkey is the threat of tomorrow. We also spoke about what happened in Israel with Gaza. But another issue that is coming up with the Israeli government is in the wake of potential elections happening, what's up with Trump's deal of the century? If we go to a report from the Middle East Eye, which is a very unreliable Qatari newspaper outlet, but they do have a story here that I thought uh, uh, was worthy of analyzing and also sort of, of breaking down. They report, Jason Greenblatt, Trump's special representative for international negotiations, urged a conference of private British funders of the Israeli military to withhold their criticism of Trump's deal of the century, details of which are expected to be made public on or around the 1st of December, until they have seen the text for themselves. Before you form an opinion on Trump's peace plan, read it from start to finish. Don't listen to rumors concerning the plan. Greenblatt is alleged to have told an assembly of the London branch of Friends of the Israel Defense Forces. Look at what this news summary is saying. The Middle East Eye calls a nonprofit organization that provides for the welfare of soldiers overseas a private British funder of the Israeli military. What they're trying to do here is where you have affinity societies and you have support societies for all kinds of different international arms, whether it's the French Foreign Legion, 
whether it's veterans of British wars, our own veterans of foreign wars. You have a group that is trying to support their kin and their cousins in another country overseas that's not at odds or anathematic to their own country. And you have an outlet like Middle East Eye calling them private funders of the military. Couldn't be farther from the truth. And then where they're trying to criticize Greenblatt's plan and the Trump's plan on what's going on with his deal of the century, I don't know what's going to happen with Trump's peace plan now. If the Israelis go towards an election, there couldn't be a worse time for the president to present his, not ultimatum for peace, but what he thinks is going to be the perfect rollout for his own peace plan. But as we know, after the elections that took place last week, the perfect time for an American president to start engaging more in, in foreign policy goals is when we have divided government. If we look at the history of peace plans that have been offered, Oslo was signed when the Democrats were able to rule both the House and the Senate and control the presidency. But Reagan started the entire Oslo process, and Bush was able to get the Madrid process together. This is the history of American-Israeli um, Palestinian peacemaking, which really started strong in 1988 when former Secretary of State George Shultz recognized the PLO as the legitimate negotiating uh, uh, partner for the United States as it pertained to the U.S.'s Israel-Palestinian interests. But enough history. Trump is more likely to get traction in his peace plan, not just after an American election, which has led to, to divided government, but after an Israeli election, which will give the mandate of whoever becomes prime minister next, whether it be Netanyahu taking an unprecedented sixth term as prime minister of that country, even though he's facing a whole torrent of different corruption investigations, or someone else. Trump is better to hold his powder and to keep it dry until a new Israeli prime minister is in place. I couldn't think of a worse time for him to introduce his own plan. But let's give this another perspective besides just seeing it through that of Jason Greenblatt, Trump's special envoy, or that of Prime Minister Netanyahu. My take on what happened with Hamas and Israel over the past 70, uh, 72 hours, and also the lack of comment that came from the United States, is, is that Israel has forgotten how to win wars. While Hamas declared openly and triumphantly throughout the streets of Gaza and to a lesser extent in the West Bank, that they had caused the fall of the defense minister, Avigdor Lieberman, by way of their launching those 400 rockets against uh, Israeli civilian centers. Netanyahu said he can continue governing, and he wasn't bothered by the fact that the defense minister that he had hired had now just resigned, leaving his government in turmoil. Hamas knows how to pursue a strategy. The Israelis have to start learning again what it's like to not just fight a war, but to have victory goals and to ensure that the other side recognizes that it lost. More after these messages. The Israel Victory Project steers U.S. policy toward backing an Israel victory over the Palestinians to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict. Decades of what insiders call peace processing have left matters worse than where they started. The time has come for a new approach a complete rethinking of the problem that draws on Israel's earlier and successful strategy of deterrence. Stop pressuring Jerusalem to compromise and make painful concessions. Instead, support Israeli victory, convincing Palestinians and others that the Jewish state will endure. Read more at meforum.org.
At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to WWDB 860 AM. This is Middle East Forum Century Radio. So we've now covered Israel, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, Iran. I'd like to get a little bit more local in terms of our assessment of what's been going on with another country that we usually don't speak about, and an area of the world that we don't necessarily get into, and that is Libya and Egypt. We had Cynthia Farahat, one of the Middle East Forum's fellows on the air, about three, four weeks ago, who was mentioning what's been going on in Egypt's capital, Cairo, right now, the battle between the Islamist forces there and the autocrats under the president of that country, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. But to Egypt's west, we now see that there may be the first meeting of Libya's rivals in the east and the west of the country since the downfall of uh, Mohammed Omar Gaddafi, the former dictator of that country, some five to six years ago. As it's reported in the U.S. News & World Report, the rulers of Libya's rival, East and West are expected to meet for the first time in more than five months on Monday at a summit in Italy, a week after the United Nations abandoned plans to hold an election next month. An Italian diplomatic source said that Khalifa Haftar, the strongman who rules most of eastern Libya, was on his way to attend the summit. Haftar had kept the host guessing until the final hours whether he would attend. Libya's prime minister, who is based in the west of the country and has limited authority, although he is recognized by the United Nations as the legitimate ruler of that country, had already arrived earlier on Monday. Italy hopes the conference in the Sicilian city of Palermo will resurrect UN efforts to stage elections in Libya after the United Nations announced last week that it could not hold a planned election on December 10th because of violence. The summit will assemble Libya's main rivals for the first time since a similar event in Paris in May where they had agreed to plan to hold the December election. But there's the problem here, that the United Nations and international negotiators think that elections and democracy can solve all the ills of all societies. Just in May, Iraq had new elections for its own parliament, and they were only able to form a government this November. It took them six months to get from a parliamentary transition from their former leadership under the prime minister of the, uh, the former prime minister of that country now, Nouri al-Abadi, to the current prime minister. A country that has to postpone elections that were scheduled after a peace conference took place in May, like Libya, where all the parties agreed to elect one another, does not guarantee that the parties who accepted that election will accept the results of the election after it's conducted. 
not to mention the potential for corruption, for mismanagement, for the lack of transparency, not having international monitors around, having armed factions urge their own uh, followers to vote for them. In order to be able to respect the aftermath of the election, you have to have a disarmament process prior to the invocation of democracy. And sometimes ruling by committee and ruling by fiat of the assembled strongmen in the country, very much how the Afghani national government was able to do so in the aftermath of their own presidential election, where they couldn't decide on who the successor to Hamid Karzai would be. That was the uh, former president of Afghanistan. You have to maybe sometimes pursue a power sharing agreement. Now, I'm not sure what's going to happen in Libya, but the future of that country is vital for European interests. The first and foremost reason is because it's right there at the bottom of the boot of the Italian state. The second reason is because they supply a very large amount of Europe's gas. It is a natural um, secondary supplier in the wake of Russia being able to control more of Europe's gas market. And the third reason is because of the migration problem. You have tons of uh, refugees that have been able to make their way through Libya coming from Central Africa, and not just those who are of the Libyan variety, but also a lot of animists and other non-European uh, like characters that were able to make their way through that country. But the other thing about the security of Libya is, is that their other allies in North Africa have always been able to present a united front in terms of guaranteeing European border security arrangements. If Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, and Egypt are able to act together as one block without having the chaos that Libya has been throwing into that area of the world for the last decade, since the fall of Gaddafi, they will be much better off for the development of those Northern African states. And as North Africa develops, the migration problem that goes into Europe will stop. And it may even reverse the flow of having people who are now seeking better lives in Europe to return to the homes from where they fled from in the first place. A secure Mediterranean is good for Europe, and it's good for North Africa. After these messages, our last ones of the hour, we'll have our final analysis and final thoughts. The Middle East Forum has been promoting American interests in the Middle East for the past 25 years. The Forum provides context, insights, and policy recommendations through its premier and most widely read Middle East journal, Middle East Quarterly, publishing debates, public lectures, staff writings, arguments, and coverage of every Middle Eastern country that America operates in. From Morocco to Iran, from Turkey to Djibouti, the Middle East Quarterly is there for you. Read more at www.mequarterly.org. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand 
for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff. Create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind, to strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. At any given moment, somewhere in America, a baby is taking a first step, a developmental milestone. But for too many parents, a baby's first steps aren't just a milestone, they're a miracle. These are the parents of babies who were born prematurely or with birth defects. It's a crisis affecting more than half a million babies in the United States each year. You can help them by joining volunteers like you who walk in March for Babies. The money you raise funds research and local programs that help babies overcome the challenges of premature birth and birth defects. Together, our steps make stronger, healthier babies a reality for thousands of families. Sign up today at marchforbabies.org to take the steps that help make milestones and even miracles possible. Who will you march for? Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. And now some closing and final thoughts regarding the future of this region after the monumental American Democratic elections, the potential for Israeli elections, and just a very exciting past few weeks in the region. Country by country, we find that America's relationships with our former friends throughout the rest of the region are strengthening, and America's traditional foes and opponents are running scared and roughshod. We talked about Turkey earlier and about how Erdogan has been able to eclipse his own problems by focusing on the death 
of one journalist. But what we have not mentioned is the near-term enemy right now of Iran. The country traditionally split between 50% Persians and 50% minorities has been experiencing severe economic collapse and unrest, not since the imposition of American sanctions that came back into full force on November 4th, but since the end of last year in December of 2017, when we found ourselves with over 90 different Iranian cities rising up against the mullahs, against the ayatollahs, and against the Islamic revolutionary establishment. The protests started in a sound called Mashhad, in a town called Mashhad, which is in the northeast of that country, a blue-collar industrial city where most of the uh, uh, cars that are manufactured in Iran come from, and it started over the price of chickens. Only a few weeks before these protests had started in that city center, Iran had ordered a nationwide bird cull, or a um, way to get rid of many different fowl that were in that country, because of what they thought was the threat of avian flu against their domestic fowl population. This caused an immediate rise in the price of both uh, birds, like chicken and, and ducks and whatever else they were eating, but also more importantly, in the price of eggs, a staple in the Iranian diet. The streets were full against people, or with people going against the Iranian markets. They said to themselves, we can't even afford what we have to buy in terms of our basic staples on a day-to-day -day basis. And now the price of eggs has skyrocketed. The price of just being able to buy poultry has skyrocketed. We have had enough. If you compare this uprising that began last year versus the Green Revolution that took place in June of 2009, six months into Barack Obama's presidency, there was two stark contrasts that have to be pointed out that many members of the American public may not be familiar with in terms of how Iranian politics work. The uprising that took place over a decade ago, or close to a decade ago now, was over rights and was led by students and city dwellers. It wasn't the countryside that had risen up against the uh, uh, Iranian government. It wasn't about uh, normal, everyday Joe Schmo workers, or, or if you want to use the Obama comparison, Joe the plumber, or whatever the Iranian uh, equivalent is. It was about people who were, who were intellectuals, and they were uh, part of the youth. They did not represent the majority of Iranians. Compare that to the people who were protesting last year. Farmers, bus drivers, merchants, operating in different bazaars throughout the major Iranian city centers. This was a combination of Iranians who didn't have a specific Persian background, but every minority in the country and those who were the economic downtrodden rose up against the regime. Azeris, Baluchis, Lurs, Uzbeks, populations that many of you may have never even heard of beforehand. But what unified the country in opposition to their government only 11 months ago was the oppression that they had all been feeling from within rather than from outside. Obama didn't stand by the Iranian people in 2009. President Trump, within five hours of the protest starting at the end of December 2017, said, we are with you. 
We sympathize with your struggle, and we will do everything that we can to help you outside of military direct action. That's the first comparison that has to be made. The second understanding of what happened in Iran is, is that while the Green Revolution in June of 2009, after Mahmoud Ahmadinejad stole the Persian election for his second term in office, these protests in Iran that started a year ago have continued. It first started with the price of eggs. Then it went to the price of public transportation. Then it was on gasoline shortages. And then there was a protest over wearing the hijab. Every single time that this continued drumbeat of Iranian civil dissidents against their own country has continued month after month, the people have become wearier. They've become more angry against the central theocratic establishment in the middle of the country, in Tehran, and even getting to the point where they were burning down traditional spiritual centers of the leader of their country, the Ayatollah Khomeini. And even going beyond that, now you have another tool that the Iranian protesters can use against their own regime. And that is the choking off of Iranian military assets and assets of the Revolutionary Guard, which is able to, in one way or another, try to protect Iran's um, theocratic sovereignty, both over their terror proxies throughout the rest of the Middle East, and more importantly, against dissidents at home, with the reimposition of American sanctions on that country. By weakening the regime and strengthening those within the country who are protesting against it, you may get to a situation where a soft revolution, or in this case, a counter-revolution against Islamist theocratic ideology is being led, not by the United States. The U.S. is only enabling the Iranian people to rise up and demand reform. A year ago, Trump had not pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal. He had not made any broad-based threats against that regime. It was only after an 18-month review from the start of his presidency until May of this year that he was able to adopt a clear and cogent strategy on the future of U.S.-Iranian relations. The people who have been leading the charge with regards to reforming the actions of the Iranian governments have been the Iranians themselves. And if we do not embrace those who are in that country, if we do not stand in solidarity with them, and sympathize with their struggle that they go on on a day-by-day basis. The leader, arguably, and this is something that just came up in an Iranian paper, was translated to English a few weeks ago, but the leader of this counter-revolt in Iran is not a politician. It is not a student. It is not a public intellectual. It is not someone who is affiliated with the former regime of the Shah that the Ayatollahs overthrew in 1979. As we approach 40 years since the Iranian Revolution in 1979, we're getting to 2019 now, the leaders of the opposition to the Ayatollahs, who have been ruling with an iron fist from the mosque rather than from the seats of government in that country, are Iranians, everyday Iranians themselves, the head of a bus driver's union, the head of a tailor's union, the head of a merchant's bazaar, and a trade federation. These are the people that are in control of Iran's future right now and are fighting for the fates of their children rather than obeying the words 
of unelected theocrats. I want to thank everybody for joining the program this morning. This is Greg Roman on Middle East Forum Century Radio, signing off on WWDB 860 AM. Thanks, and have a great week.